more importantly as a congregation about the things that he's challenging us in these days. It's been some fairly heavy going on a Sunday morning here over the last few months, um, not just for the congregation, but more especially for Peter and for Colin who have uh, had the responsibility of searching God's word and finding God's heart in that. Uh, our senior pastor, Peter Granger, has asked me to uh, depart from that theme for today and focus on the cross. We're going to return to Jeremiah next week, but uh, let's see what God would say to us through his word as we just read it. So our communion theme is to focus on the cross. And uh, some of you will have seen either in the film, gone to the cinema or on DVD, Mel Gibson's brutal portrayal of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in The Passion of the Christ. Some people consider this film to be unrealistically or excessively violent. I'm quoting from one film critic. The sad reality is, however, once you research the historical background for crucifixion as a form of capital punishment, you soon discover that Gibson's account is strikingly accurate. It's a no-holds-barred portrayal of what really would have happened. Crucifixion is the most grueling and painful forms of capital punishment. Medical experts, historians and archaeologists have examined in detail the execution that Jesus Christ voluntarily endured. And all of them agree with that statement that I've just made. Unlike some forms of execution, forms of execution that are deemed to be humane, crucifixion was purposefully designed as a method of torture, only eventually leading to death. The victim would be hung on a horizontal beam that would then be raised up and attached to a vertical post, thus forming the cross shape. Hanging from their hands, the victims found it very difficult to breathe, and many actually died from suffocation. Now, the Romans devised a way of prolonging death by nailing the victim's feet to the vertical upright. Although adding to the overall initial pain of the victim, it allowed them to press down on their feet against the beam and to relieve the pressure on their chest and their lungs, enabling them to breathe better. Some commentators that I've read uh, claim that there are historical records that show despite the agony endured in crucifixion, a man suspended with his feet, especially a fit and healthy man, could survive for up to one or two days, and records may even show that victims might take as long as a week to die from exhaustion, thirst, or even blood poisoning from the nails. Jesus experienced what one doctor has described as a symphony of pain, produced in every movement, in every breath, suggesting that so sore and painful would be the experience that even the slight breeze of a cooling wind against his skin could bring screaming pain at this point. So maybe you have seen the film. Maybe you've even read the book. What did you see? Did it affect you in any way? Did it change your life in any form? What was your focus as you looked on the cross? 
In this sermon, we're going to attempt to ask these same questions of those who watched Jesus die. It was nine o'clock on a Friday morning when they led Jesus away to be publicly executed by crucifixion. He was not the only victim that day, as two criminals were also led away with him to suffer the same torturous fate. We have a picture here of Rembrandt's famous picture of painting of the three crosses. Many words have been written regarding the detail and the doctrine of the cross of Calvary, and rightly so, because history itself pivots on the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. And we too are going to consider today the implications for each one of us and how we ought to respond in view of such a sacrifice. But before we address that issue specifically, I want to look briefly at each of the three crosses, and in particular, what we can learn from the three men who suffered that most agonizing of deaths on that fateful Friday, almost 2,000 years ago. And for the sake of those who need to hang um, their thoughts on alliterated uh, uh, points, we're going to look at these three men and their three crosses as the rebellious skeptic, the repentant sinner, and the redeeming Savior. And a question, well, just for you to observe, something to hold on to as we go through this. Observe each of these men's attitude in general, but more specifically to how they actually behave on that day. So let's look first of all at the rebellious skeptic. Like the other scoffers present on Calvary's hill that day, this man displays um, what I want to call an attitude that's common to sinful nature, that sinful nature that is prevalent in every one of us. In Matthew 27, in verse 39 following, we read, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, that is Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Do you know, as you listen to people's words, you understand something about what's going on in their hearts. It's true for all of us. Listen to any conversation uh, later on in this building or out in the street. Uh, Jesus himself says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, Matthew 12, 34, if you need a reference. And actually, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says at that time to them, you brood of vipers, you who are evil, how could anything ever good come out of you? Because out of the mouth, being the overflow of the heart, that's where you reveal your true nature. So listen to the heart of a skeptic through the words of abuse that he speaks. Luke 23 and 39 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. What is that request? If it's not mocking. Maybe some people think, well actually he's maybe acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. But look what it is that the man's after. Save yourself and us. In other words, I don't want to die. I'm not admitting that I deserve this death. So get down off the cross, Jesus, and take us with you if you're the Son of God. Such insult or abuse, as the authorized version translates it, is tantamount to blasphemy. 
The New International Version, the word translated insult, is actually too light a translation of the original word, which is blasphemio, which means to speak reproachfully, or to rail at, to revile, or to blaspheme. Blasphemy is what this man is speaking on the cross. Aren't you the Christ? It's not a question that comes from the heart of someone who's really seeking after truth. It's coming from an evil, wicked heart. Blasphemy has several um, characteristics to it. Blasphemy is to speak contemptuously of God or of the things that are sacred. It disputes God's power. I don't have time to read these scriptures to you, but I put them up on the screen simply uh, for your study later on. By the way, these notes are available always after a sermon here in Charlotte Chapel on the web, um, both in PowerPoint form and in recorded form if you need to listen to something that you've missed. Blasphemy disputes God's power. It desecrates God's name. It violates God's glory. And it displays human arrogance. Uh, Things that are blasphemous, uh, maybe in a time gone by were understood to be so. I don't know if some of you watched the TV program last night um, uh, in which Rory Bremner was talking about, in a satirical way, some of the stuff that's going on in world politics today. Actually, part of what he gave to his audience, those of us who were tuned in to listen, was actually blasphemous, doing some of these very same things that the thief on the cross is doing. And we see the attitude of the rebellious skeptic is hostility. Hostility towards God and the things of God. So let's look secondly then at the repentant sinner. In Luke's account, we're told that one of the criminals who hung there hurled incense at him. We just read that. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. But Matthew, however, says that in the same way, that is copying the the taunts of the crowd, the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also heaped insults on him. So it wasn't just the one robber. Both were doing it to begin with. Initially, both these men are blaspheming the Christ who is hanging on the cross. But something happens. One of them experiences a change of heart. In Luke 23 and 40, we read that while the other continues this blasphemous scoffing, he is rebuked by the the, the criminal who has a change of heart with this challenge. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. Don't you fear God? That's an interesting question. I wonder if some of the YPM were to take a camera out in Princess Street for one time and ask that very question pointedly of everyone they met. Do you fear God? I wonder what sort of response we would get in today's world and generation. But listen further. The next comment is interesting. In verse 41, this man who has the change of heart says, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man referring to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Luke 23:41. He admits that he and the other criminal are getting their comeuppance, but he can see no justification at all for Jesus being treated this way. It's interesting to note at this point that the Greek word used for thief or robber means one who uses violence to rob openly. The contrast is 
with what Jesus talks about in a parable one time, with the one who secretly enters a house to steal. In days when uh, the authorities allowed the punishment to fit the crime, it is most likely that both of these men have already killed in pursuit of their robbery, of their chosen profession. They certainly were not aback of using violence if necessary. The equivalent today might be the armed robber who kills if necessary to get what they want. I am tempted to, but won't open up that whole debate about whether punishment fits the crime these days. But I'm sure we can discuss that somewhere else. But then in verse 42 we're told, again just displaying more of this change of heart and attitude, he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come in your kingdom. So we see that this man has had a change of heart. But why the change? The he said is emphatic in the original language, indicating that he alone requests that Jesus remembers him. Remember the other man has said, If you're the Christ, get yourself down off the cross and take me with you. But this man in his change of heart says, Remember me. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus, if there's any hope at all, I'm placing it all in you just now. Why that change? Do you know there's always an emphatic change in the heart of anyone who truly seeks to know Jesus? Sometimes the word is preached, the gospel word is preached, and people convicted of their sins say, do you know I really ought to live a better life? And so from this day on, I'm going to be a better person. And you go out and you try in your own strength to be a good moralist, a good upright citizen, a moral person. And it fails, always does. You see, the thing is that we have to come recognizing our sin and go beyond that and have this emphatic change. Oh God, help me. I'm not going to help myself to change to become what I think you want me to be like. I know I can't do that. And this emphatic change always happens in the heart of anyone who truly seeks God. The Scriptures tell us that there is no one who seeks God. Romans 3 and verse 11. Jesus also said in John 6 and 65, No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So what was it that enabled this man to change from being a blasphemous skeptic like his colleague to becoming a repentant sinner? I've got two or three things I want you to look at and consider with me. First of all, I believe he witnessed Jesus' forgiveness. As the Roman soldiers were crucifying him, Jesus asked his father to forgive them. Luke 23 and 44, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, as a young Christian, I really struggled with that verse for years and years and years. Because it appeared to me that they knew perfectly well what they were doing. And if people know what they're doing and they know it's wrong, why should they be forgiven? Because my thoughts are not God's thoughts and neither are His ways my ways or my ways His ways. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Folks, honestly, ask yourself, what is that? What is that that's taking place there? It's certainly not a demand for justice. In reality... Jesus is dying for these people's sins so that they can be justly forgiven. None of us probably will ever be executed for a crime that we've committed. 
But if you felt unjustly sentenced to death, as Jesus obviously was, how would you feel about that? Wouldn't you be wanting some justice? Wouldn't you be wanting some retribution? The most recent and most public and and high profile of executions across the world uh, was when Saddam Hussein was executed for his crimes against humanity. We weren't given the full um, recording, but leaked transcript says that he swore violently to seconds before he dies, swearing violently at his executioners. Maybe you can empathize with that. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Jesus died so that you can be forgiven. Jesus died that you can justly be forgiven for your sins. And so that because of Jesus' forgiveness, we can justly forgive those who sin against us. You can forgive those who hurt you, even as Jesus forgave those who hurt him. And think of it, my friends, oh, how they hurt him. I believe the thief also observed something in Jesus' character that helped them come to this place of a change of heart. In verse 41, this prisoner says, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Despite his own pain and suffering, this prisoner, this robber on the cross, must have observed something of that aspect of Jesus' character that Peter talks about in his first letter in First. Peter 2 and 23, Peter says there, when they hurled their insults at him, when they blasphemed him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to he who judges justly. In a nutshell, Jesus did not return like for like. How unusual in human nature. Jesus left the final word to his father. So this robber observed the forgiveness of Jesus and he observed Jesus' character. And one final thing, I actually believe he understood the truth about Jesus and himself. Heaven must have revealed the truth about Jesus to this man. Even as it did to Peter when he makes that historic confession regarding Jesus Christhood. Scripture doesn't tell us, but I strongly suspect, and you can find me in eternity if you get there after me, Or if you're there before me, you can wait at the gate, see whether I'm right or not. I strongly suspect that when you get to heaven and you find this thief, that his testimony will sound something like this. And there I was, dying in a criminal's death on the cross. When suddenly it just dawned on me, this man Jesus on the cross was actually the Son of God. I quickly realized that he was my one and only hope and I asked for his help. And oh my, 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 did he help me. The moment I died, all of what you see opened up before me and I've been here in paradise since that day. Do you know that truth still dawns on sinners today? And it often follows the pattern observed in this man's conversion experience. He feared God. 
Proverbs 1 and 7, lots of references in Proverbs, you can go and check out for yourself. Just type in in a search, the fear of the Lord. But it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Maybe from your heart this morning, the thing that's most apparently missing is a real fear of God. No sense that one day you're going to have to stand before Him and give an account, not just for the actions that you did or didn't do, but for every word. For every word you've ever spoken, every thought you've ever had, you're going to have to account before the righteous King of kings and Lord of lords. This man also acknowledged his sinfulness. He understood that the wages of sin is death. He knew that he was a sinner. Romans 3 and 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he recognized what Jesus came to do. Romans 6.23, the second part of that verse says, The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, believing that Jesus is a good man will not save you. Pushing it to slightly controversial edges here, I actually think that saying that Jesus is the Son of God need not necessarily save you either. But when you recognize that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is your only hope. And when you cast all of who you are and what you are upon God's mercy and ask Jesus to help you by surrendering your life to Him and asking Him to save you, that your condition then changes from sinner to saint. Maybe as I speak this morning, you've been a good moral person. You've not been a bad person in the eyes of society or necessarily in the eyes of God. And yet, the Bible says that your righteousness, the best you can do as a good, strong, moral, upright character, smells putridly in the nostrils of a holy God. The best we can do stinks to high heaven. We need to recognize what Jesus came to do to save us from our sin. So the attitude, I think, of this repentant sinner is honesty. God, I can't help myself. There's nothing I can do. And so I admit I need your help. Will you please help me? Save me. And then thirdly and finally, we come to the redeeming Savior. Let's listen to the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross and see if we can discern his attitude. The first one's, I want to consider our Father, forgive them. The scripture references will come up there for you as well. I'm just going to speak the words. You know, as I read these again for, I don't know, the umpteenth time this week, it just really occurred to me how much Jesus practiced what he preached. It's not that long since Peter has come to him and said, "Um, this whole forgiveness business, Jesus, How often should I forgive a brother who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, I tell you, 70 times seven. Well, that's a whole lot. (laughs) If you want to do the math, it's 490. Who keeps a record? So that when someone gets to 469, you think, one more strike and you're out. I don't need to forgive you any longer. The point that Jesus is making, just keep forgiving them, Peter. Keep forgiving them. Just keep forgiving them. No matter how often the sin against you, keep forgiving them. And Jesus has to prove his point here. 
he repeatedly prays, Father, forgive. I actually believe that Jesus forgave his torturers for every single hammer blow and every cruel word. Isn't it amazing that his perfect love keeps no record of your wrongs? When you come and confess your sin to Jesus, that you can be forgiven for every sin when you come in true repentance. And in forgiving you, it's not that he just absent-mindedly forgets that you wronged him. When scriptures talk about Jesus forgetting, it says that he chooses to remember no more. I remember an uncle of mine back in Orkney telling me about a tenant who came to a particularly wealthy landowner. And the tenant had run up huge debts, insurmountable debts that he just couldn't pay off. And he came to explain his position to the landowner one evening when my uncle was there. And he said, I, I, I'm finished. I just realized I, there's nothing I can do. Uh, the cross that I rent from you, I'm bankrupt. got nothing to offer. And so I recognize that you'll give me termination of notice and I'll have to cast myself on the workhouse or, or find work somewhere, but I, I certainly can't farm any longer. It's gone. The wealthy farm owner listened to the man's plea and he reached up behind the clock on the mantel place and he took the little book in which he'd recorded every single debt the man owed him and he put two lines through it down the centre of which he wrote the word cancelled. That's what Jesus does. When as a repentant sinner, you and I come to the cross and say, Lord, this is my life so far and there is nothing I can do to pay you back for the wrong I've done. There's nothing I can do to change myself. And Jesus takes whatever form of record he has and he chooses not to remember that anymore. That's real forgiveness. The second thing Jesus said there on the cross, was today with me in paradise. God's promises are only as sure as his character. And if God says he's going to do something and then he doesn't do it, well, that makes him out to be a liar. Jesus said to his disciples just before he goes to the cross, in John 14, 1-3, he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. What amazing hope you have if you're a Christian. What an incredible future we have as believers in God and followers of Jesus. No matter how good it may get or no matter how bad it may get here on earth, the best is always yet to come. Today with me in paradise. That's our eternal hope. Thirdly, two statements coupled together. Here is your son, here is your mother. Was there ever such compassion? In the face of all that Jesus was in, in suffering, he entrusts the two people on earth that he loves the most into each other's care. What a challenge there is there for us in the church. Are you a believer this morning? Do you believe in the Son of God? Is Jesus your Savior and Lord? He loves you. He loves you so much. I couldn't begin to describe to you how much, how much He loves you. But you know the believer that is beside you, He loves equally. He loves every one of His children with the same love. 
So why don't we have that same compassion towards each other? He actually entrusts us to each other's care. No, David, look after Colin. Colin, look after... It just goes on. Look after each other. Mother, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. John and Mary being told, look out for one another. Have compassion. Love each other the way that I love you. Fourthly, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Do you know, of all that Christ suffered, I believe that the moment he is forsaken by God is the most painful experience of all that he had to endure to free us from our sins. Not only had Jesus known an unbroken communion with his heavenly Father on earth, but that he had co-pre-existed with him in eternity. And with the guilt of our sins laid on his holy body, he became utterly repugnant to his holy Father. And he was on his own for the first time in eternity. We read it there in Matthew's Gospel that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in that loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? No wonder theologians refer to these words as a cry of dereliction. If you've ever been abandoned by somebody you love well, you can be comforted that Jesus understands your pain millions of times over. Paul says to the church in Corinth that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God. The fifth thing that Jesus says is, I am thirsty. Now, these words, I am thirsty, are so familiar to any of us who have spent time with people who are dying. And surely this conveys to us just how human Jesus was as he suffered that agonizing death for us. Listen to the way that John Stott describes it in the book, The Cross of Christ. I would never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have turned to that lonely, twisted, torture figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness, that is God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain, He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. And then Jesus says, it is finished. In the face of suffering, have you ever asked, where is God? Well, your answer begins right here. The man of sorrows who is familiar with your grief is seen here on the cross dying for you. And because of what he finished on the cross in that once for all sacrifice, 
he is able to finish the good work he begins in all believers who stay true to him throughout their lives. For the thief beside him, it was just a matter of a few painful hours. For you it may be weeks, months or years, but Christ will finish the work that he has begun in you. And then finally he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What a moment of trust that is. What a moment of final submission for the man Jesus. He knows that God has turned his back on him as he hangs there, full of our sin. God isn't looking, can't look upon his son. But he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the garden, Jesus had learned the discipline of submission in the face of all his basic human instincts to recoil. And though he could have called legions of angels to come to his assistance, Jesus died alone. I believe the attitude of the redeeming Savior, more than anything else, is humility. Philippians 2, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so in conclusion, what is the purpose of the cross? Well, let me say first of all, it's all in God's plan. Some people want to tell us it was an accident. Jesus didn't really mean to die. It went too far. Nothing in Scripture indicates anything like that. It was all in God's plan. Paul tells the church in Ephesus that God's purpose for both Jew and Gentile was to create them into one body and to reconcile them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Elsewhere, he tells the Corinthians that he and his companions preach Christ crucified and that it is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But he goes on to say, but to those But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what do you see as you focus today on the cross? What is your attitude as you focus on the cross? Can I very gently ask you, are you hostile? Maybe you're hostile towards God. Maybe you're hostile towards your fellow man or woman. Maybe you ask questions like, why doesn't God stop the suffering? Why doesn't he heal me? Or why doesn't he heal my loved one? Why didn't he prevent that person I love from dying? Or are you honest? God, have mercy on me, a sinner, faced with the reality of God's holiness, And your sinfulness, you're left without excuse and have to agree that you deserve to die in your sin. Do you admit that there is nothing you can do for yourself and simply cast yourself on God's mercy and ask that he remembers you when he comes in his glory to judge all mankind? Have you experienced the power of the cross? See, there is only one of these attitudes that's compatible with Christ's humility. Let the power of the cross break your proud and hostile attitude so that you can, even as the thief on the cross did in the face of death, become honest in your appraisal of what you deserve, but at the same time reach out 
an invitation to ask Jesus to save you. Two statements as we absolutely finally, finally conclude. The purpose of the cross is to provide you and me with a means whereby we can have a restored relationship with our Creator. And that's great news, but I actually believe there's a better purpose for the cross of Jesus being there. The purpose of the cross, I believe fundamentally, is to provide God with a means whereby He can have a restored relationship with His creatures. God loves you so much that He gave His Son so that He could have a relationship with you. Are you honest about that? Are you hostile about that? Only Christ could occupy the center cross because His death was unique in its purpose. But just reflect with me in closing now. Absolutely closing, closing. Reflect with me that each of these crosses actually symbolize or typify the death that all human beings, whether brutal or painless, actually have to die. So let me ask you, which cross are you on? Are you going to die without Christ? Or are you going to die with Christ? Let's pray.